So, Will. Yes? This movie is part of a, I wouldn't say grand tradition, but a weirdly prevalent tradition of media that depicts kidnapping as something that might be good. It's a tale as old as time. A tale as old as time. And I was wondering if you have come across this before, and what's your favorite piece of weirdly pro-kidnapping media? Well, what I like are ones that don't even quite acknowledge that it's kidnapping. Like, this movie dances around it, but the word does come up a couple of times. But when I was thinking about it, I eventually settled on a movie that was very dear to me when I was a kid. More so than it is to me now, but still something that was once very important to me. And that's Peter Pan. (laughs) You are not wrong. A movie that's absolutely about kidnapping. Yeah, very much so. Wow. Like, the plan pretty quickly is, like, forget the boys, is to kidnap Wendy and force her to be a mother. Yeah, that movie's dark because also... Which is darker when I said it out loud than when I started talking about this. Yeah, wow. It is really dark when you put it that way. Also, one of the few kids' movies where the antagonist is openly saying, I want to murder a child. I mean, that is what's great about Captain Hook, is like, he is openly murderous. While being ridiculous, still. Right. So it's not actually scary. And of course, there's the fact that he's human, where like, the other, like, murdery Disney villains usually either are not human, or their targets are not human. Right. Captain Hook is a person who wants to kill people. Who wants to kill a human child, also. Yeah, it's great. Because a lot of times, even, like, if there's murder, it's adults. Or even death. It's like Mufasa was murdered by Scar, but it's not like Scar then went and tried to kill the child. No, he sent the hyenas to do that. Yeah. Uh, That was your answer. great choice. So... My first thought was the heartwarming tale of an author who's rescued from a horrifying car crash by what turns out to be a fan. And they get to know each other and become friends until she decides to break his ankles until he writes a book ending that she likes better. Of course, this heartwarming tale is Misery. So I have not seen Misery, but my wife and I are watching our way through Rob Reiner movies, and that's next for us, so I'm very excited to get to it. Uh, It's very good. It is not heartwarming. I'm surprised you haven't seen it. I really enjoyed it. Kathy Bates, fantastic performance. When's she bad? She does choose some interesting television roles. (laughs) Okay, sure. Did you hear about High Maintenance, where she, like, ran a pot shop or something, and it I got seen horrifying it, reviews? Yeah. I mean, I get, didn't say, get the check. I didn't say, when is she but... in bad stuff? I said, when is she not good? She is always compelling on screen. Yeah. I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to her performance, but I can't imagine it's excellent. <laughs> um, An actual story that is worth read it. Well, Misery is worth reading, but a story that actually approaches this subject interestingly and, like, with something to say is a book called Southernmost, I read, in which a, like, pastor, like, he lives in a small town. Two people move to town, a gay couple, who try to come to his church, and 
everyone rejects them. But through his conversations with these people, he, like, realizes, you know, homophobia is bad. And then wants to rescue his... He, like, divorces his wife and then wants to rescue his son from this, like, mindset. But then he's reported for kidnapping. And he also has a gay brother that he, like tries to reconnect with and it's like it is bad like parental kidnapping is bad so it's you know you're not a hundred percent on his side but it's an interesting like look at the issue yeah that is really interesting it was also a pretty quick read and it's at the dc public library cool what's the name of that book again southernmost by silas house very cool we are a movie podcast but will and i are both media readers yeah, I will say I've consumers. been re- We sure are. I've been reading many fewer books this summer than I planned because like on a whim, I decided I was going to like go back to 70s X-Men when it like became the X-Men that we know and just like read that for a bit over the summer, and instead I have read like 60 issues of that and very few books this summer. I've just been plugging away at it. It's still reading. There are words. Yeah. Oh, totally. I have been trying and somewhat succeeding at mixing nonfiction in with my reading this year. Oh, nice. I did start a book about the Crimean War because I was like, I know nothing about this and or Russia. So I thought it would be interesting because it's written using the archives of France and Russia as well as just like British newspapers. Oh, and Turkey. But then I was reading it, and it was super interesting in the background, the lead-up, the beginning of the war. I got to the battles, and I was like, I don't care. And I skipped to the peace talks at the end and the, like, legacy of the war. That rules. I respect that. And I'm counting it as having read the book. I just do not care about battles or military strategy. Can't, Can't make myself care. There is some very funny depictions of how incompetent the people were. Just, like, everyone. And that is, like, the line on the militaries of the Crimean War. Right. And they are making decisions that I have a feeling a normal, like, foot soldier would have been able to say, that's bad. Such as, we should take the guns off the boats if we want to use them. I mean, the famous thing about the Crimean War, even to people, like, more famous than the name of the war itself, is the Charge of the Light Brigade. Right. Which is all about, like, this is pretty stupid. Yeah. Like, it's a vanity project. But apparently there was also a, like, more recent reevaluation that the Charge of the Light Brigade actually had some effect. Oh. More than it is given credit for, but it also was a senseless waste of life. But it did actually produce some of the outcomes for which it was decided all right well good for them then (laughs) good for the 600 i thought about reading that section of it like the battle of balaclava and i was like nah i don't care it's just a bunch of people dying life's too short life's too short to read this it was a long book and then obviously i immediately picked up a longer book but it was high fantasy so it went down much more smoothly there you go uh, speaking of high fantasy, apropos of nothing, and I will probably <laughs> cut this out, but I was glancing at the the crate next to me when I was thinking about movie ideas, and I thought of uh, another great kidnapper, uh, which is Shrike the Resurrected Man. What a great adoptive father. He's really a true hero. Um, wow. Every time I remember Mortal Engines exists, my life improves. I paid like $12 for that 4K steelbook. We should do it.
We should put it on the schedule. There's like a, a kind of half-hearted romance in it. There is a half-hearted romance. There is about as much romance as this movie. Yeah, that's true. Which, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. Or something I thought would be more important and then was as important as I thought it would be for a while and then came back. And then back. it's not. And then at the end, they're like, is this still important? And ultimately, the movie's like, no. Right. But we'll dig in and we'll see what's there. And this week, we are wrapping up our look at the Best Picture nominees of 1988 with the winner, Barry Levinson's Box office smash. Absolute juggernaut, Rain Man. (laughs) Rain Man, the number one film at the domestic box office from 1988. It made $172 million. It's so weird to wrap my mind around that. It's bizarre. Because, like, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about with this movie. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Especially with, like, its legacy with regards to public perception of autism, which is really interesting and I think more complicated than either of us expected going in. Mm -hmm. But it's also just like hard to imagine like everyone in America deciding like, this is the movie we're going to go see. Right. There's so many movies out there. (laughs) And I don't know. It's hard to imagine the world and the audience that would choose this. And also, like, to be that big a smash in 1988, it, like, it has to play to everyone. Like, families have to go see Rain Man. And people, like, teenagers have to go on dates to see Rain Man. Right. Which it kind of sounds like they did, almost. Yeah. In the first 19 weeks of Rain Man's theatrical run, it was out of the top three at the box office only five weeks. Oh, my God. It just, like, kept bouncing around. One, two, three, one, two, three, five, one, two, three. <laughs> For, like, four months. I I can understand enjoying this movie, but, like, not to that extent. There's so many good movies that came out that year. Yeah. It opens the same weekend as Working Girl, and a week after Twins. (laughs) No, I have not seen Twins, but I do think it's funny that in back-to-back weekends, there are movies about adults discovering long-lost siblings and going on a road trip together. There must have been something in the air. Yeah. I would love to read a paper that takes, like, classic instances of movies produced at the same time with the same plot and trying to figure out what triggered the stories. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Twins and Rain Man are in the same category as, like, Dante's Peak and Volcano. But it would be interesting. Like, the Hercules moment. What triggered the Hercules moment? In, like, 2016. Yeah. What a weird time that one was. Yeah, well, nobody saw either of them, so... Yeah, I mean, that's also interesting, is comparing, like, which ones have both do well, both flop, and then one does better than the other. Okay, so we've been uh, working our way through, since last summer, doing the Best Picture nominees of 1988. We talked about Working Girl, then uh, Dangerous Liaisons, then uh, we did Mississippi Burning and The Accidental Tourist, and now we are wrapping things up at Rain Man. Mark, just like... Top line overview. What's your read on Rain Man? Um, I think it is a well-made movie. And, like, I think it was good. 
but I do think the cultural baggage that comes with it made it hard for me to fully enjoy because it's like I have heard the debate surrounding this movie and it's like it increased understanding of autism as like a thing that exists which led to increased funding and better understanding but the public perception of what autism is that it created was very wrong (laughs) yes and that part of it is still lasting to this day to the point where like in the first episode of bob's burgers when they're talking about tina being autistic they do the toothpicks thing but that is also i think coming from a place of making fun of the rain man depiction of autism right the joke in that is like of course this should not be an assumption yeah i mean it's also funny that it is for <laughs> but yeah i mean it's the interesting thing of this is obviously a very well-intentioned movie yes and like I have thoughts about, like, how it all came together and how it came to be a movie about autism, because it was not when it was originally conceived. But from what I've read, and I've read stuff from some of the doctors who worked as medical consultants on the movie, I've read from, like, people with autism who've written about it. Since then, The Guardian actually commissioned a couple of good uh, retrospective pieces for the 30th anniversary. It kind of seems like Rain Man is a movie that successfully introduced autism to the public in a way that it really had not been dispelled what stereotypes existed. But then, like you said, like introduced this whole new raft of misconceptions, most significantly the idea that like people with autism are savants. Mm -hmm. And so it is this, this weird thing of a movie that kind of seems to have solved the problem. It was created to address, but created its own significant problems. Yeah. Which is an interesting form of failure. Right. Because it's not like a movie that's created to solve racism and then just doesn't. I mean, that's the thing is, I kept thinking about Mississippi Burning during this because that's another really well-intentioned movie where they are using, like, we're the first ones here, let's make our mark. Like, we're the first big studio movie about the civil rights movement, but, like, totally flops in its effort to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one has some positive outcomes, like, significant large-scale positive outcomes, but introduces new problems that still resonate till today. One of those retrospective Guardian pieces uh, is an essay by Carl Knights, who has autism. And he was saying, like, the big problem is that, like, Rain Man succeeded in its goals, but then that should have been the beginning for representations of autism in film. And instead, like, it just became the template. So then, like, 30 years later, you still have, like, what does autism look like on TV? It's the good doctor. Yeah, there hasn't been any changes. And also, that's not even getting into the part where they cast someone who is not autistic to play the role. Right. And, like, part of the thing for me is, like, knowing what I know about Dustin Hoffman, there is the part of me that's watching this movie and just thinking, like, oh, Dustin Hoffman is loving this. Like, this is exactly the kind of, like, acting exercise that he really enjoys. Yeah. What shocked me is when I was reading about this, Pauline Kael in the 80s when it came out, actually called them out for casting Dustin Hoffman. Okay, but she was kind of doing that as a way of taking a dig at Hoffman, whose performance she did not like. She referred to Rain Man as Dustin Hoffman humping the same piano key for 131 minutes. I and when she love that. <laughs> and when she asked the question, like the rhetorical question, like why not cast an actual autistic person? She then goes on to say, but with an actual autistic person, there would be no movie. This whole picture is Hoffman's stunt. 
It's an acting exercise, working out minuscule variations on his one note. It's no more than an exercise because Hoffman doesn't challenge us. We're given no reason to change our attitude toward Raymond. We have the same view of him from the beginning of the movie to the end. She is a good writer. (laughs) She's always fun. She is always a good writer, even if you disagree. But also, I do agree with this, honestly. Like, I mean, the movie is about Tom Cruise learning to accept Raymond as he is. And it's not really as much about changing Raymond. But the performance is pretty, like, clearly Dustin Hoffman wanting to capital A act. Yeah, and this is, to me, like, the part of the movie that I am most uncomfortable with. Because, like I alluded to earlier, the movie was not originally conceived as an autism movie. Uh, It was written by Barry Morrow, based on a real-life savant named Kim Peek. It's not, like, supposed to look like Kim Peek's life. It's just based on, like, he knew about Kim Peek and met him and was like, I'm going to write a movie about a savant. But Kim Peek was not autistic. He was a savant, and he had some other developmental conditions. But... This kind of stuff was a real interest of Morrow's. He had already written a TV movie about a guy named Bill Sachter that starred Mickey Rooney. And so then, like, the original idea was he was going to make a movie about a savant. And the movie was pitched to Dustin Hoffman and Bill Murray, with Dustin Hoffman as Charlie and Bill Murray as Raymond. That would be bad. (laughs) Yes, it would be bad. But Hoffman wanted to play the older brother. He wanted to play the savant character. And he met with Kim Peek a bunch of times to, like, study his mannerisms, to talk to him about what his life was like. And this is the part where I get uncomfortable with it, is that Hoffman then decided that Peek's behavior wasn't a good fit for the character. Basically, Hoffman decided there wasn't enough business. Yeah, it wasn't weird enough. Like, it wouldn't stand out enough. So Hoffman proposed making Raymond autistic as well. Just to act. Basically, yes. And, like, annoying. It is. And he then, like, went and he met with a bunch of autistic people. Like, uh, he spent a lot of time with this guy, Joseph Sullivan, from West Virginia. And, like, the smoke alarm scene is based on something Joseph Sullivan told him about. The cheese ball toothpicks were a thing that Sullivan did. But that's where I most agree with what Pauline Kale is saying, which is, like, this movie started as being based on a person. And the reason it's less based on a person is because Dustin Hoffman wanted to do more business as an actor. Right. He's annoying. <laughs> Yes. I think that it is interesting because coming off of Sia's movie Music, which oh is goodness. Golden Globe nominee music. Currently, oh my god. That's how I found out that movie existed. Was it was nominated for a Golden Globe. <laughs> Yikes. So, I have not seen Music, but I listened to a podcast episode about it hosted by an autistic person and Boy, did it sound horrible. Like, yes, I pointedly did not. So bad. So I was maybe not expecting that level of depiction of autism, but seeing this, it was better, but I was still also just like, why are we telling this story this way? Because also, again, this movie isn't about Raymond. It's about the brother whose name I don't Charlie Charlie yeah it's ultimately a vehicle for Charlie becoming slightly less of a dick right so it's still kind of the like I don't know what the word is it's not magical negro because obviously he's not (laughs) 
black, but like do, p- playing that role in terms of a disabled person. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And so that also, it's like Dustin Hoffman wanted to act as an autistic person to win an award. Which worked. He wins Best Actor. Yeah, which did work. But the movie then isn't really interested in actually, like, telling his story as Raymond. Yeah. I do think, I will say, one nice thing about the movie, the takeaway, the moral at the end of the movie is Raymond needs the support and doesn't need to be changed. Charlie needs to figure out how to relate to Raymond on his level, which is better than, like, oh my god, Charlie solved his autism and now he can move in. Right, which was dramatic at the time. Like, previous movies about mental illness would not have ended the way this one did. And in fact, earlier drafts of this screenplay ended with Raymond not being reinstitutionalized and just, like, living with Charlie and going to baseball games. Yeah, see, that is one thing I did actually respect about this movie, is him ending up back in getting the support he needed. And then Charlie learning how to operate within that world. Right, yeah, it's the fact that, like, yeah, again, like, you know, it's what we keep saying, which is, like, the movie's more more successful than I certainly expected. Mm-hmm. And, like, the ways that Charlie learns to work with Raymond as opposed to just, like, forcing Raymond to acclimate, but also does it without, like, getting pulled into Raymond's magical world. Yeah, that's the other thing, is that Charlie didn't learn to see the world through Raymond's eyes. Charlie learned yeah. how to interact with Raymond on a level that is appropriate for Raymond. Right, and and I appreciate the simplicity of that. Yeah. So, in terms of Pauline Kale saying, like, Dustin Hoffman doesn't make a major change in Raymond, I don't think Raymond needs to change. He's not the character who's a jerk. Yeah, but I do agree with the part about (laughs) Dustin Hoffman wanting to act. Yeah. I think it's also just interesting keeping this in our heads of a run of people winning Oscars for playing people with disabilities. You've got Hoffman this year, Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot the year after that, and then, of course, Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump in 94. Right. And then all of that leads up to Tropic Thunder's joke about Simple Jack, which is honestly one of the more successful bits in that movie. Okay, did you see that, speaking of Tropic Thunder, following the success of Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie are currently working on three different projects. This was just in deadline this week as we record. Oh my god. So the, three, the three projects. One is a Les Grossman movie. His character from Tropic Thunder. Oh. Oh, ew. Which they had talked about doing after that movie came out and then it kind of fizzled out. Another is an action thriller with franchise potential. They're calling oh god. it. They're currently shooting the final Mission Impossible movie. And the third one is a musical. Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie want to make a musical together. That's just fascinating. I would love to see it. I am very curious. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, of action thrillers, at various points, the draft of the screenplay for Rain Man included them being chased by the FBI across the country, and them being chased by the mafia across the country, them accidentally getting a whole bunch of cocaine in the car, which led to some people being uh, chasing them. And one sequence in which they were trapped in a barn and Raymond had to use savant mechanical skills to build a sidecar to a motorcycle they found there so they could drive away. Thank God yeah, that they went with just, like, a simple movie. Yes. Simple except for the part where (laughs) 
Raymond is the greatest card counter who ever lived. I gotta tell you, I, in my head, this was like mostly a Vegas movie. And I was like, I got 80 minutes into the movie and I was like, maybe I was completely wrong about this. Yeah. It's like a full hour and a half into the movie before they go to Vegas. I knew about the Vegas scene and that was one of the only things I knew. But I think I've seen part of this movie before. Like on TV or something, maybe? Sure. A cable classic. So that's why I kind of also knew what to expect in terms of the Vegas thing. is because I was like, I think I've seen this. At least some of it. I probably got bored as a kid. This is not the most appealing to a child. The movie is pretty slow. Yeah. It's... It's two hours and 13 minutes, and it feels like it's two hours and 13 minutes long. It it sure does. I was I was losing interest at times. Barry Levinson is not a guy who makes short movies, but, like, my favorite Barry Levinson movie is Wag the Dog. And that's a movie that I love because I feel like it keeps turning into a more and more absurd version of itself. Mm-hmm. And this movie is kind of the same version of itself the whole time. Yeah. I think that, like, this movie, when it has its big moments, captures your attention. So, like, when they hit the Vegas scene, when he goes to the court-like mandated discussion with the therapist. That, to me, is the most effective scene in the whole movie. Yeah, it is. And those moments, like, work, but there's just a lot of stuff in the middle that I lose interest in. Yeah, like, unfortunately... Everything with Susanna. Yes. Which we will talk more about. Yeah. I mean, that character is just like, it's so unclear to me what her purpose is. It's also just weird because like Valeria Galino is like an Italian screen legend. I just has nothing to do with this movie. No. And she's trying. She really is. Before we get into that though, I think it would be good to... Now that we've, you know, discussed the movie before going to the romance, I am curious what your thoughts on 1988 are. Okay, so I have been going out of my way to watch additional 1988s over the course of this year to put these Best Picture nominees in perspective. As of this evening, I'm at 22, including Scooby-Doo and the Reluctant Werewolf, which I watched earlier today. (laughs) My God. So I have a ranking of the five Best Picture nominees, and I also have my own top five, which was difficult to put together. I did not go out of my way to watch movies for it, but I have enough knowledge from other movie, like movies I've watched, that I also have my top five that I would. Is Scooby Doo and the Reluctant Werewolf on it? Unfortunately, not. I have not seen that one. It, It has the plot structure of a carousel. My God, what year just did just kind of does the same thing over and over again? What year did Scooby Doo and the like Zombie Island one come out? That's the only real Scooby Doo movie I remember. Nineteen ninety eight. <laughs> that is why. Yeah, ten years later. All right. So, uh, what is your ranking of the five Best Picture nominees? So, last place, Mississippi Burning. Then I was on the fence, but I'm leaning towards Rain Man number four, Accidental Tourist number three. But those are the ones I had the most trouble kind of deciding. Then I think number two is Dangerous Liaisons and number one is Working Girl. Our lists are identical. Are they really? <laughs> yes, they are. I kind of thought so. Yeah, like I honestly thought a little bit about Mississippi Burning because I do think the performances are really good. But just like, no. 
No, because the performances in Rain Man are good, and it's less, like, malicious. <laughs> yeah. So that's my, yeah. I'm not that surprised. Once I drew up my list, you were like, oh, we might be different, but I was kind of like, I think we'll be the same. <laughs> All right. So what about your top five? Like I said, I had a hard time putting mine together, but I think you've had yours good to go for a while. Yeah. So I was like, did some research. I haven't ranked these ones. Okay. So I will go in alphabetical order, and then maybe I can say who I would give the award to. Okay. So just to start off, I did keep Working Girl and Dangerous Liaisons on the list, because I love, I really did like both of those. Okay. My other three are much more Mark picks, because they are Who Framed Roger Rabbit? The number two movie at the box office that year. Yes. My Neighbor Totoro and Hairspray, the um, John Waters movie. Yeah. Totoro was my number six. It, like, just didn't make my list. Totoro might be my winner. I love that movie. This was, like, a pleasantly difficult five to get to. Like, it's it's nice when there are a lot of things that you want to have on there. Mm-hmm. Totoro was my number six. Bull Durham was my number seven, uh, which is a great movie that we should do on this podcast that is the movie where I finally understood how Kevin Costner was a sex symbol. I only know about that movie through the You Must Remember This episode. (laughs) Well, we should do it. It's great. So my number five is The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm -hmm. On brand. Yes. (laughs) Number four, Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. That was up there for me. But I just also thought you'd put it on your list, and I kind of wanted to include some curveballs. I allowed Totoro to fall off because I was sure it was on yours. My number three is Mystic Pizza. My number two is Working Girl, and my number one is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I would have given it to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's a weird thing to say about a movie that is based on a book, but Roger Rabbit is just the kind of thing that feels like it could only be done as a movie. But it's also something that is extremely different from the book, from my understanding. Yes, Yes, by all accounts. So I just think that that's the best movie that was made that year. Yeah, there we go. Uh, If you disagree... One, you're wrong. Two, please tweet at us so we can tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> yes, uh, just, just hashtag 1988. I can't think of any reason that that hashtag would be super crowded. Or hashtag top 588 to let us know what your top five for 1988 are. Yes, that hashtag works because it actually hopefully will have nothing else there. <laughs> yeah, hashtag top 588. Yeah, this was fun. I, I've enjoyed watching movies from 1988 moving towards this goal it has been a fun side project for me yeah it was a good year for movies yeah worked out great Uh, i did not get to twins so i still have to see twins we still we still have not covered or seen all like however many movies are released in a year but now that we have that out of the way should we should we discuss what we came here to discuss what our show is devoted to we probably should we have to we have to love the love of rain man (laughs) Or at least we have to discuss the love. We, don't we have, have to, to like discuss it. the love of Rain Man. Every week, we break down the romantic plot line into five points to guide conversation. Will, will you take us to point one of this uh, questionable romance? Yeah. I, like you said at the top of the episode, this is a romance that occupies a lot of like the first 30 minutes of the movie. And then <laughs> seems to only come back. When they remember that there was a love interest, they're like, oh, shoot, what's going on with her? It's it's not great. <laughs> so point number one is just 
a bad existing relationship. Listen, I don't want to be demanding you, but do you think, could you possibly say, I don't know, 10 or 12 words before we get to the hotel? Hmm? Consider it foreplay. Can, can you include me in some of your thoughts? Thinking, you know, nothing special, I'm just thinking. Maybe there's something that you're thinking about that we can talk, you know, make a little conversation. Well, if there's something to talk about, Susanna, you know, we'd be talking about it. I'm just thinking, what's the big to-do about me thinking here? I don't know, I just feel like, you know, I'm going away for a few days with someone. Call me crazy. Okay, you want to talk? Let's talk. How was I your day? I want to talk. A, I feel no, like you're talk. excluding me from what's going on. He's so mean to her. Yeah, we meet Tom Cruise, who plays Charlie Babbitt, who is... Just the worst. Just, I mean, classic, terrible, terrible 80s, bro. Yeah, he is an importer of foreign cars who has, like, sunk all of his money into it. But he's in dire straits because the cars cannot pass U.S. emissions tests. Right. Because it's, like, Lamborghinis. We're, like, introduced to him complaining about the EPA. It's so 80s. It's, like, a meaner version of the Ghostbusters stuff with Walter Peck. One of his first lines, he's on the phone. He goes, fucking EPA, the whole world is choking on smog, and they're going to solve it by keeping my four cars off the road. It's like, dude, yeah, by keeping all of them off the road. Yeah, they are not targeting your four cars specifically. The logic there makes no sense. Remember when you were growing up and, like, in social studies classes, you learned, like, yes, L.A. is covered in smog, and that's, like, not true in the same way now? Definitely not in the same way. But it is still smoggier. DC has, like, honestly, nicer air than a city of its size usually does, which is good. Yeah, well, we keep finding new ways to be hostile to cars, and I'm a huge fan of all of it. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, so so Charlie is dating his employee, also a red flag, Susanna, who's played by Valeria Galino. Is she just, like, the secretary? What is her role? Yeah, I think she's some kind of assistant. They just let her be Italian and they don't bother to explain it. Maybe she's there in with the Lamborghini <laughs> people. <laughs> Maybe her last name is Susanna Lamborghini. She's Susanna Lamborghini, yeah. Uh, no, I do appreciate... I really appreciate when a movie just lets someone not be American and also doesn't feel the need to explain why an Italian woman is here because there are Italian women in LA. Okay, yes, generally. Like, I almost always appreciate that except every once in a while it's just like unacceptable like abby cornish in three billboards outside abbing missouri i'm sorry that character doesn't have an australian wife yeah there are times this one doesn't feel um particularly fine yeah yeah she's Susanna lamborghini it makes sense (laughs) so their relationship seems unpleasant we're told they've been together for about a year she knows basically nothing about him I mean, he barely knows anything about himself. That, oh, that's true. Wow. But, like, they're driving to Palm Springs. Like, for the weekend. He, like, one, makes them late because of this Lamborghini sale. That's, like, about a hour and a half to two hour drive plus, depending where you are in the traffic. They are at the, if you've ever been to Palm Springs, they're, like, at the windmills, which means they're basically there. And... He has said nothing for the whole ride. And eventually she's like, can you talk to me? He's like, why the f*** would I talk to you? Yeah, he like flips out on her for having the audacity to suggest that they might have a conversation. Like, it's a very unpleasant thing. Then he gets a call on his car phone, which is another way this movie is telling us that he's (laughs) like a douchebag. Is that he has a car phone. 
it always reminds me of the days when having a cell phone was a sign of the douchebag in a movie. It's the funniest period. And he gets the call, and the call is that his dad has died, and, like, the funeral's happening. He's like, oh, fine, like, I guess, like, that's what my weekend is now. And she's like, a week, like, your dad died. This is not a weekend thing. And he's like, no, my dad and I are estranged, so this will be a brief trip. She's like, well, you never told me any of that. Yeah. I mean, I honestly got the feeling that he was gonna just not go at first, and, like, she would have to convince him. But at least he was gonna go. (laughs) Well, he was going to go for the money. Yeah. I mean, that's what it ended up being. But at that time, I was kind of like, oh, well, at least he's going. And so, like, they go. And she insists on going with him. At first, he's like, why would you come along? Like, this is going to be stupid. And she's like, your dad has died. We've been together for a year. (sighs) He's so awful. Yeah. And she, like, is consistently, like, trying to be supportive. And he's always snapping at her. There's absolutely no reason that she should be with this man. It's the least charming Tom Cruise performance ever. I do think it's intentional. Yeah. But, like, it's a thing of, like, I don't really care about this guy until that last scene in the medical evaluation. Like, that scene really works for me because it's the first time I feel like there's, like, a meaningful emotion going on with him. And they do a few emotional moments, like him teaching him how to dance throughout. Yes. They do, like, a build of this isn't the one moment where all of a sudden Charlie's nice. Like, he is nicer throughout. Like, he does grow. Yes. Of course, like, the dance stuff, that all comes, and some of the more negative reviews pointed this out, that all comes after he has found a financial use for Raymond. Yes. That is true. I don't agree that it is well done. I'm just saying, like, at least the movie is trying to, like, make him more sympathetic. But still... Like, he starts out so bad and ends up only moderately better. Like, he ends up at a point where a, what I would describe as mediocre to low level relationship with a family member. (laughs) Yeah. But it starts at such a dismal place that it's growth. Which is one way to do it. Like, you know, again... I do also appreciate that they don't have him, like, totally revolutionized in six days. Right. I just also, I'm like, does Susanna add anything to the movie? Or just... No! So, it's like, the movie would have worked just as well without her there. It would have made him, honestly, less mean. That's the only thing, is it would have made him less mean. And if the goal was to make him seem meaner, then I guess they succeeded. Yeah. I mean, the other thing you get from Susanna is, like, the weird scene where she teaches Raymond to kiss. That scene, I hated. <laughs> yeah, bad. Truly hated that. So, speaking of Raymond, point number two, Susanna and Charlie kidnap Raymond. They find out that Charlie has been left basically none of his dad's money. He's been left a car and the rose bushes. That's funny. <laughs> yes. The rose bush, like, having the rose bushes included is funnier than it just being the car. Absolutely. But Charlie tracks down that the rest of it has been assigned to this person that he doesn't know about. And he discovers that it's his brother who lives in an like assisted living facility. And it's Dustin Hoffman, who is an autistic savant. Yes. And circling back to the very top of our episode, Charlie decides that what he should do is kidnap his brother. And hold him ransom. And basically, yeah, hold him ransom for half of the $3 million that have been put in trust for Raymond. And I just don't really know how this plan is supposed to work. 
I guess he just wants a check. Right. Like, I I don't know. So, the, is the, like, the other doctor is the executor of the trust? It's all very weird. I will say, the trust was also set up in a very suspicious way. It was. Because the doctor should not have ultimate control to the point where he could decide not to spend the money on Raymond, which is legal yes. for him to do. Yeah, it does not seem like old uh, Papa Babbitt was making great decisions about any of this. No. The sequel, it just turns out that the doctor has embezzled all of the money. Look, man, there was a mafia plotline in an early draft. Okay, I'll do it if you tell me why. Why do I do... Uh... What? Why do I have to take the car and go down there and wait for you again at the gate? I've been waiting for you for days. No. Why? It's for Raymond. The car disturbs him. That's why. That's why. Okay, Raymond. <laughs> so they do this kidnapping, but Susanna is rightly resistant to the whole thing. Like she keeps trying to convince Charlie to turn around and bring Raymond back. And he just keeps steamrolling her on everything. And also on the pizza order. She says not pepperoni and he orders pepperoni anyway, because he's a douche. He's so awful. <laughs> he's terrible. Um, they do have sex in the hotel. I, ugh. Yes. Bad. It's just weird. And when he finally, like, fully spells out to her, like, the plan here is to hold him ransom for money, she gets fed up and she leaves. Right. Good for her. She should have yes. left earlier. She should have left earlier. She should have left six months ago. She should, yeah. Probably, I can't imagine it was that much better at the beginning. She's got family money. Like, she doesn't have to work for Charlie. Yeah. She is a Lamborghini. She's a Lamborghini. So that takes us to point number three. Where Susanna is gone from the movie. She largely goes unmentioned, except occasionally, like, Charlie will be on the phone with his number two, and he'll be like, oh, she hasn't come to work? Have you heard from her at all? And then another point, he calls her on the phone, and he's like, just tell me it's not over. Just tell me it's not over. And for some reason, it's not over. What does she see in him? Presumably, what she sees is a way to continue smuggling cocaine-lined Lamborghinis into the United States. It's the only... The only thing. Right. He's a patsy who is helping her international car slash drug running scheme. Maybe. Anyway, point number four. Uh, Charlie is uh, fully out of money. So he takes Raymond to Vegas to use his mathematical savant skills to count cards at Blackjack. Yeah. Somehow Charlie must have known how to count cards. Well, there's this scene where he like takes the deck of cards and Charlie's just throwing cards on the ground. So I think he understands like the concept of counting cards, but can't do it himself. Yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> I do love the moment with the wheel of fortune where Raymond's like convinces him to bet money on 20 and then he loses yeah. $3,000 because Raymond isn't actually just, it is a moment of them trying to say Raymond actually is, isn't magical. Right. But it goes by so quickly because they've won so much money at Blackjack. Right. After getting kindly asked to leave the casino before they can win more. Yeah, it's uh, it's the card counter thing. But the, the movie, the card counter. Like, casinos don't mind if you count cards. They mind if you count cards and win a lot of money. Right. You just have to be willing to cut your winnings. <laughs> so around this point, Susanna shows up in Vegas. It seems kind of unexpectedly. Yeah. We were all confused. Even even us as the audience. We sure were. I, like, how she knew where they were, 
Maybe he had called and left her a message, but the timing of that, like, did she fly? What's going on? Why did she do that? Why doesn't she just, like, cut her losses and find another way to bring drugs into the country? I don't know. So, like, she shows up. She tells Charlie it is not right what he has done with Raymond, which is still true. But as much as she's, like, saying these things, she doesn't take actions that reflect it. The only other thing she really does in Vegas is uh, dance with Raymond in the elevator and teach him how to kiss. Have you ever kissed a girl? I don't know. No, no. Open your mouth. Open. Yeah. Like this. Like you're tasting something very good and very soft. Yeah. Mm. Like this. It's a bad moment. It's a weird, weird it's scene. uncomfortable to watch. And it's also, like, the movie doesn't really know where to go with it. Like, when there's a mention of it later on, Charlie kind of, like, prickles, like, oh, is this going to be a thing? But doesn't, because, like, what are they going to do? Like, commit to a fight over her kissing Raymond? Like... I mean, it's... Su- there's no good way to take the story from there. It's, like, so predatory. Yeah, it is. It is not a consensual kiss. And I mean, it is only a kiss, so it's at least, like, it could be so much worse, but it's still, like, a symptom of a very prevalent issue, especially within care homes of, like, people taking advantage of people that are unable to give consent. Right. Like, at best, it's patronizing. Yeah. So, it's it's just tough to, tough to watch. But then, by point number five, everybody's back in Los Angeles, and it seems like Charlie and Susanna are good? Yeah. I guess. There's one reference to the kiss and Charlie has a weird reaction, but that's it. Maybe he's learned to become a better person towards her as well as Raymond. We can only hope. I don't think so. I think he's learned to become a better person towards Raymond and I have no reason to think anything else is different. Yep. So do you find the romance of Raymond believable? Not really. No, it's really not. He's just so awful. Again, the only way I have made sense of it is by implicating... Susanna Lamborghini in an international drug ring. She's also so pretty. <laughs> right. So it's like, why? It, like, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and this isn't even the hottest Tom Cruise looks in a movie this year, let alone at other points. Right. Because he's also in Cocktail. My God. It's so bad. Where would you, on a scale of one to ten, with one being the least, where would you rate this movie? Like a two. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't get there it. There is no redeeming moment in this relationship. There's nothing to it. It's bizarre. Like, genuinely, the only reason I'm giving it a two and not, like, a one or a zero is just, like, for, like, uncomfortable reasons. Like, the fact that he's her boss. Yeah. And also, people are in bad relationships sometimes. Yeah. But this one isn't even, like, an abusive relationship. It doesn't even feel like it's, like, an emotionally abusive relationship. Yeah. It seems like he just sucks. Yeah, he just seems like a bad person. Uh, do you think either of them are dateable? No, no, not really. I mean, maybe Susanna, but like she's such a nothing. She, yeah, she's just given nothing to do. I feel so bad because yeah. the actress is trying. She also should not have come back after the kidnapping. No, that also makes her a bad person. Now, do you think that Charlie and Susanna would stay together? I hope not. No. Why would they? Why are they still? Yes. Uh, in absolutely no world will they actually stay together. No. Now, given that you're not dating them, obviously not going to date Raymond. If you have to pick one person in this movie to date, whom do you choose? Wow, this is a tough one. 
This is really tough because there's like no one. I guess um the worker at the care home, not the doctor, but the one who takes care of Raymond and like knows him. The one who works, the black guy yeah. who works with him directly. Mm-hmm. He seems really good. He seems nice. He's on screen for very brief time. Seems to genuinely care about Raymond. Yeah, that's probably a better answer. I was going to say Sally Dibbs, the <laughs> diner worker who whose phone number Raymond knows in part. Because she seems nice, and also because she's played by Bonnie Hunt. Yeah. I mean, the options are not (laughs) that great in this movie. Not a lot of characters. Especially after they wrote out the Mafia members. Yeah, of course. So, Will, I have a question because I'm terrified of the answer. (laughs) So, a lot of the movies we've done have been made into Broadway musicals. I am really scared to ask, should this, or worse, has this been made into a musical? So, addressing the should question first, I could definitely see it. You know, the road trip genre lends itself decently well to a musical because you can do, like, a song at every stop. You can do some driving songs. I have seen road trip musicals. I can't think of a road trip musical I've seen that I really liked, but I have seen them. I don't think it's a good idea, though. I think that the stuff that frustrated us about Hoffman's performance would only be exaggerated on stage given the way that physical performance often needs to be exaggerated in a musical. It would just have to, like, otherwise be entirely reworked and star. Like, basically, it would need to be rewritten and star an autistic person. Rewritten by an autistic person and starring an autistic person. And at that point, just write And at that point, yeah, at that point, just do something original. Now, Mark, uh, for what it's worth, there is not a Rain Man musical. I was almost certain someone would have done it. There was a Rain Man play that premiered in Sweden last year. Feels unnecessary. Yeah. Ugh. Um, I'm just like looking through my notes for any final thoughts. I think five o'clock is an unacceptable time for Jeopardy to air. Yes. Also agreed. It should be at 730. It should lead into primetime. Or seven. Seven's fine. I don't mind if it's before wheel, personally. I like it after. Because I like it t- I like the better one leading into primetime. Yeah. It makes sense, but also, like, you can watch Jeopardy at 7, eat your dinner at 7.30, and then be back for prime time. All right, I respect that. Um, do you want to shout out any any movies? You know, you mentioned music earlier, uh, and I brought up Forrest Gump. Any movies that you think are good on people with disabilities? I mean, um, all of them are controversial. None of them have been done perfectly. I think Coda was good, but sure. developmental disabilities in particular... Uh, like, not that autism is really fully a disability, like, depends on the spectrum, but, like, I don't, I can't think of anything. You know, you're talking about the spectrum. It is wild that this movie insists over and over again that Raymond is high-functioning. Yeah, that's the other thing. I guess maybe at this time, with very right. limited knowledge of autism spectrum disorder, they may not have, you know, diagnosed enough people to <laughs> see where Raymond fits on the spectrum because like right they're probably only diagnosing the much more serious conditions at this time right and diagnoses do start going up dramatically after 1988 in part thanks to Rain Man yeah but yeah that was the thing that struck me every time it came up. yeah that did strike me but I think that I can kind of contextualize based off of the era and the level of understanding of the of autism spectrum disorder at the time yeah I'm just gonna mention a couple um Cha-Cha Real Smooth was at Sundance this year, and it's now on Apple TV. And that stars Vanessa Berghart, who does have autism as an autistic character. And I think the movie treats her very well. 
and it's also like fun and funny. So I don't remember if I've mentioned that to you, but Cha Cha Real Smooth is a good time. There's also a movie a couple of years ago called The Peanut Butter Falcon, which stars uh, Zach Gotzigan, who's an actor with Down syndrome, as a guy who like really wants to get into like local wrestling like wwe style wrestling and that's a cool sort of meandering through the swamps of carolina movie to like underground wrestling rings huh so there's stuff out there yes i think it exists but i think it also mostly exists in much more recent times yes and those are both independent movies like the the fact is like rain man was a studio movie it was a big deal but it's also created a lot of problems yeah uh next week we will be discussing a audience suggestion a movie that i've never heard of the adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the eighth dimension uh this is a request from our listener fred a repeated request (laughs) sorry fred we are finally getting to it um i'm very excited to see what it is though yeah look i have heard good things about it i'm excited to check it out uh, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will, <laughs> what's the best piece of dating <laughs> advice we got from Rain Man? If you are with your partner and they kidnap someone, leave! Oh my god, that was exactly mine. Get out! Ugh, you stole it. Um... On a less serious note, because you took the correct one, if you ask for no pepperoni and your partner orders pepperoni, also leave. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye!